continuing our study in the book of Ephesians this morning. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Otherwise, most of the verse that I want to read is uh, printed in, in uh, the bulletin. Next week, I really want you to be here. Uh, we're, we're going to be talking... <laughs> makes it sound like... Next week's sermon is really going to be good. This week's kind of... Yeah. But uh, next week... I, I never know what the thing is going to be called until Deb thinks of a title, but uh, um, something on, on just what I see is just a rampant problem in Christianity, and that's that, uh, uh, okay, wait a second. There is up here. This is good. Did you guys come up with that? That's really cute. You did. On the front chairs here, it says, drink and breathe. <laughs> Big letters. Very, very, very cute. <laughs> okay. Thank you. You know, I can use that. For those of you who are new here this morning, uh, I'm on voice therapy. I just had a throat operation to learn how to talk. I developed an, uh, a node or a nodule, whatever it's called. And so uh, my, vo my speech therapist is always telling me to, to remember to drink water while you're talking and remember to breathe. And so thank you for that helpful reminder. <laughs> That's really cute. It's a good one. Okay, where was I? Oh, next week's sermon. Yeah, come. I'll be good. Um, okay, Ephesians chapter 1. Oh, I'm going to be talking about this idea that you, you keep on having to quest for more. There's always a little bit more blessing over the hill, and, and you always feel like you're missing out on something. And, and uh, I don't know, it just feels important. But this one, right now, feels more important. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And actually, I want to read up through verse 23, even though it's not printed in your bulletins. Well, actually, start with verse 15. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And now he starts to pray. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his mighty hand, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. He's still praying now. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is praying. I pray that you understand that. Let's, let's, let's us pray. Lord, we are very aware those of us who understand this, those of us who are believers understand, Lord, that um, what you're about in this world is not gimmicks and fancy things and using a lot of talents, Lord. Uh, Lord, what you're about is glorifying yourself through the working of your spirit in weak vessels that we just sung about. So, Lord, this morning we're very aware that this word will have no impact on our life unless your spirit is operative, making it come alive. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. We are here not to get you in wisdom, not to hear something eloquent, but to, but to see you more clearly. 
and to be more committed to you and more surrendered to you and to be transformed by you. In your name we pray. Amen. The last two weeks we were talking about the three pillars of the Christian life. We're using verses 15 and 16 as a way of getting at these three pillars of the Christian life. The first pillar we, we talked about last week, it's, it's the faith. The, the, the first two pillars come from the church of Ephesus that Paul talks about. The third pillar comes from Paul's response to the church of, at Ephesus. Paul had heard, number one, of the faith of the Ephesians in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first pillar, the foundational mark of the Christian life is faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we talked last week about what that means. We understand it right. It's, it's absolutely revolutionary. It means that out of the beauty of the Lord that we see, out of the beauty of His saving work, the believer is to be moving towards increasing submission to the Lordship of Christ. Flying right in the face of everything that our culture teaches us is right and appropriate for the individual, the believer walks their walk, leads their life, in increasing submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And only to the extent that we are submitted does the word Lord of our life actually take on any meaning. Lordship without submission is meaningless. So the first thing that Paul heard about with the Ephesians church is that they had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing is that he had heard of their love for all the saints. And here's a sermon I'm not going to preach this morning. Uh... It will, it will be coming up in chapter 2 again, so I'm going to put this one on the back burner. But I will say this much. <laughs> now you should start to worry. Um, following right on the heels of the Lordship of Christ is this mark, this pillar, this foundational aspect of the Christian life. And that is that as we move to submission to the Lord, we move in love and service to those whom the Lord has died for. The more submitted we are to the Lord, the more of His heart and the more of His perception towards others do we take on. The Bible always connects together the love of God and the love of the body of Christ. The two are inextricable. They, they can't be separated. You read about this a lot in 1 John. 1 John chapter 4, verses 10-12 through 12 says that, that the love of God towards us is made complete. It is perfected. Or another way of translating that talao is to say it's brought to its culminating point, its goal, when we love one another. Love of God immediately translate, translates into love for others. 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 14 says, This is what manifests the love of God towards us when we love one another. That's what shows it off. That's what proves that it's genuine. And Jesus said in John 13, in fact, it, it's... It's an incredible passage. We're going to preach about it sometime. But we're not going to preach about it this morning. But I will say this. Uh, in verses, you know, G Jesus starts washing the feet of, these, uh, of his disciples. One of the most lowly things that a servant could do in the first century is grubby, dirty feet. You know, this was before the days of Nike and before the days of paved roads. And, and their feet was dirty. And, 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 and one of the things that a hospitable person would do is have their servants wash the feet of guests. And Jesus, the God of this universe, begins to wash the feet of his disciples. Oh, it's, and then he says this in verses 14 and 15. I have done this as an example for you. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Love translates into service. And the only thing I want to say about that is this. We are a body of Christ to the degree that we are in fact involved in each other's lives. And we've got to find ways to be involved in each other's lives. 
How can we wash each other's feet if we're not involved in each other's lives? And this comes against a, a real significant cultural deal, too, because we're so individualistic in our lives that we come to see church as just an aggregate of a bunch of individuals who have nothing really in common with one another outside of Sunday morning. And so we have no opportunity to wash each other's feet. We've got to find ways to wash each other's feet. Have to find ways to submit to one another, to love one another, to express help towards one another. To be involved in, in each other's lives. Jesus said, by this the world will know that I am sent by the Father, by your love. That's one of the greatest witnesses we have. And if you think of things, ways that, that the church can do that more effectively. We, we're, we're doing small group kind of things. We're now putting together a, a, a hospital visitation team. Dream with us. And if God lays something on your heart, share it with us. Because as we mature as a body, we've got to find ways to do that more effectively. But that's not what I'm preaching on this morning. I'll preach about that later. What I want to talk on this morning is the third pillar of the Christian life. And this one I have in my gut in a real strong way. And it is what Paul does in response to what he's heard about the Ephesian church. In a word, he stops and he prays. He prays for them. Having heard of the Lord, their faith in the Lord... And having heard of their love for one another, he prays. It's really weird. It breaks the flow of the entire passage. In verses 1 through 13, we've seen all summer, Paul is building momentum. The longest sentence in the Bible. It is one of the most glorious sentences in the Bible. He starts off this letter by just spewing forth incredible truth, powerful truth about how believers are, are called from the foundation of the world. They fit into God's plan from the foundation of the world, and they're placed in Christ Jesus. And they're loved as they're placed in the one who is loved. And they're made holy as they're placed in the one who is holy. And they are forgiven, and they are redeemed, and they're delivered from bondage. And then Paul says that they are sealed with the Holy Spirit when they believe. The Holy Spirit comes and says, this is my guarantee. It's incredible stuff. It's powerful stuff. And then just as he's hitting this peak, he stops the whole thing. He puts the brakes on and he prays. And it actually feels kind of awkward and out of place. It'd be like me preaching the sermon and I'm getting all fired up and I'm just ready to make my final point. All of a sudden, I stop and I pray. Lord, I just pray... And I need to do that more. Follow the Spirit in doing that more. But why did Paul do that? You would have expected him to now just sort of start cruising into some other, you know, theological truths. He's got this momentum going. Why did he stop and pray? Well, look at what he prayed for. Having laid out all of this stuff, he stops and he, and he, and he basically prays, Lord, I pray they get it. I pray that the Holy Spirit will open up the eyes of their heart. That they can understand and see the calling I just talked about, the redemption I just talked about, the salvation I just talked about. We're going to talk about it next week. What we see from all this is that Paul clearly understood that his words, even though they were inspired by God, his words were not enough. He clearly understood that his words, even though they were true, even though they were powerful, even though they were great, even though they were profound, were utterly useless unless God was working in the heart of the person hearing them and reading them for them to get it. We sometimes think, I think we often think, in our cerebral, intellectualistic kind of society, that the problem is, is in what we understand or the problem is in our thinking. 
if we just read a little bit more, had a couple more self-help books, studied the Bible a little bit more, learned a little bit more, then maybe our lives would, be, would grow more. If we just crammed our, our noggin with a little bit more information, then maybe we'd make, make some real genuine progress in the Christian life. And sometimes we think in, in, in witnessing to others that if we just say it right, and preachers have this problem a lot. I fall in this trap a lot. I think that if I can just say it right, if I can get the words just right, if I can get my argument tight enough, if I can just be persuasive enough, if I can just, uh, you know, make the analogies good enough, then surely people are going to understand. The coin will drop in the slot. Their eyes will be opened. And I'm all for good, I'm all for good sermons, and I'm all for good books, and I'm all for, for good apologetics and rational arguments and persuasive arguments. That's all well and good because God uses those, uses those things. But what we need to learn from Paul here this morning is this. If God is not working in the person's heart to soften their heart and to open up their eyes and to open up their mind and to do the kind of cultivating work that only God can do, the best arguments in the world are going to come to nothing. The best, the best speeches in the world, the most, the most persuasively written books, the most powerful sermons, even if they're directly inspired by God, hit a brick wall and come to nothing if God's not working in their heart. God is the one who's got to do it. And everything, every word, every, every jot and tittle that I'm talking on right now is going to do no good in your life unless God is also at work in your life, creating an understanding, opening up your eyes, opening up your heart, opening up your mind, opening up your ears, that that divine aha takes place. God's got to open up the eyes. Otherwise, you're arguing about the colors of the rainbow with a blind man. It just doesn't do any good. And no matter how persuasive it is, they're just not going to see it. God's got to move. And so Paul stops and prays. Now, there's two principles here very closely related that I want to just drive home here. They are not new. We've talked about them before. We need to be reminded of them again. They have to do with prayer and the reason for prayer. We started this work with the understanding that this was to be much more of a prayer movement than it was to be a church. And we have tried to keep that in our face all the time, the, the, the necessity of prayer. I think we've been a little bit remiss on that in the last several months. And in some ways, I can tell. We need to go back to the basics, these pillars of the Christian life, and remind ourselves what are we all about. There's two principles that are at work here. The first principle is this, as, as Jackie and John sang about. And they had no idea that I was going to be preaching on this. The first principle is that without the moving of the Spirit, we can do Zippo. Without the moving of God's Spirit, nothing that we would do would come to anything. Jesus puts it like this in John chapter 6, verse 63. He says, the Spirit gives life, but the flesh can do nothing. My words are spirit and they are life. Because they issue forth from the Spirit of God, they are not of the flesh. The Spirit is life. The flesh can do nothing. I wonder if we really believe that. In John chapter 15, verse 5, he puts it like this. I am the, I am the, the, the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. Don't even think you can do anything apart from my investment in what you're doing. And I wonder if we really believe that. I wonder, 
because our whole culture is based on the idea that we can do self-sufficient things. We've got this inherent potentiality you always hear about. And we can build great corporations and great businesses and great buildings and great empires and all sorts of stuff, and it's got nothing to do with God. And we can even put a religious title on that, and it still doesn't have anything to do with God, but now it looks like it has something to do with God. And you can have your own creativity and your own ingenuity, put together great church programs and build great church church uh, buildings and, and preach nice, smooth, eloquent, cute little sermons that people really like and maybe even build large congregations and it can have nothing to do with Christ. But if it's going to be of kingdom value, if it's going to reap fruit for eternity, if it's going to, if it's going to have the supernatural power of God which alone can open up people's hearts and people's minds, there's got to be prayer behind it. God's got to be moving in it. It can look good, it can look fancy, it can look brilliant, but if God's not in it, it doesn't come to anything at all. I wonder if we really believe that. If churches really believe that, I wonder if we'd have a little bit less planning and programming on our own ingenuity and then having a little perfunctory prayer at the end saying, God, I hope you bless what we've already, what we, we already decided we're going to do whether you're in it or not. But we need to believe that without God, we can do nothing. The worst thing that could ever happen to us is to become self-sufficient, kind of self-confident, that, hey, we got it together now. We, we really are, you know, we know how to put together the sermons, know how to put together the programs. We've become experts. We can write the book on how to plant churches. The minute that happens, man, the door's got to shut. Because without me, you can do nothing, the Lord says. The minute you think you can do something, that just proves you're doing nothing. And everything you're doing just conceals the fact that everything you're doing counts for nothing in the kingdom. You're not transforming lives. You're not making disciples. It doesn't have life because it's not from the Spirit. Without God's Spirit, we can do nothing. The second principle is this. We need God to move. The principle is that God's Spirit moves when people pray in faith. God's Spirit moves when people pray in faith. We need to hear this again. Lord, I would pray right now that you would give me the words to say and give us the understanding to have this impact us, Lord God. I would pray, Lord, that your spirit would just hover over this place as you were here in worship, Lord. But even your presence here, Lord God, doesn't come to anything unless you put it in our hearts, open up our hearts, sensitize our hearts to your spirit. Lord, let these words be life, Lord, and give us the heart to receive that life all over this congregation, Lord. Impact us and confront us, we pray. Amen. Amen. That felt good. I didn't plan on doing that. That felt right. I think we should follow Paul's example a little bit more. God's Spirit moves when people pray. This is why you find throughout the Bible, and we've emphasized this early on in this work, we need to hear it again and again. There's nothing that is commanded more often of the believer than that they pray. 1 Chronicles 16, seek the Lord continually. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray continually. Pray at all times. Pray without ceasing, it says. Luke chapter 18, Jesus gives us this parable about the widow and the unjust judge. And the thrust of the whole thing is he's saying, pray in a persistent, obnoxious kind of way as though you had to nag God for what you want to have happen, even though he really wants to do it anyways. But pray like that, with that kind of persistence. Because the Bible teaches us that God has bound himself to prayer. He's omnipotent. And he can do whatever he wants. He calls all the shots. But he in his infinite wisdom has covenanted himself, bound himself to move on the principle that people ask him to move, that, that believers intercede. And he's got his own good and wise reasons for doing it that way. 
But the principle is this, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 16. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, then will they hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. If my people will pray, if my people will pray. And so you have it throughout the whole Bible. God puts incredible promises on prayer. To encourage us, he just tells us. There's nothing that, that God has promised more in association with anything than prayer. So you find, for example, in, in, in Matthew 18, verses 19 through 20, the Lord says this, If two or three of you are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of you, and if you agree, if you agree on earth as touching anything and ask the Father in my name, it will be given to you. And Mark 11 puts it like this, verses 24 to 25. Everything you ask... Believing that you shall receive it, you shall receive it. Now, he's not giving us there a grab bag for personal self-gratification so that we can just go and ask uh, for Mercedes or whatever. He's talking to his disciples, and he's talking about kingdom work. He's talking about things, as 1 John says, that are in the will of God. Pray according to the will of God. But when you agree, and when you bind, and when you have faith, that your prayer is efficacious, God wants to move. In fact, the Bible says, goes so far as to say this, and this has been one of the theme verses of, 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 of Woodland Hills from the start. Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 3, the Lord says, If you call upon me, I will show you great and mighty things, things you have not yet imagined. Do we believe that? Call unto me, and I will show you great and mighty things, things that you have not yet imagined. And so Paul prays in Ephesians 3.20. It's another one of the prayers that Paul prays in this book. He prays, to him who is able to do exceedingly more than what we asked for or could even imagine. He's able to do that. And what he wants is people who will take him at that. You know, we need to understand something here. Prayer is not begging God to do something God doesn't want to do. God wants to bless. Amen? God wants to move. God wants to heal people. God wants to revive people. God delights in opening up people's eyes. God delights in saving people. God delights in, in restoring families. He is not stingy with his blessing. He is not stingy with his grace. He is not miserly with his power. He wants to glorify himself. He wants to unite families. That glorifies him. And he wants to save people. That glorifies him. And he wants to heal people physically. That glorifies him. And he wants to heal people emotionally. That glorifies him. He wants to do it. But he has bound himself to this principle that he moves when people pray. So there's a tremendous responsibility that comes to believers to pray. Prayer is what unlocks the floodgates of God's blessing. It opens up the windows of heaven and allows the Spirit of God to fall and do what God wants to do. If you look at all the great, and I'm not overstating this, look at all the great revivals throughout, throughout church history. I wouldn't have done that if it were not for those two uh, signs there. All the great revivals throughout all of church history, they're very different, they, they look different, they have different methods, different tactics, different results. But the one common denominator to every single one of them, without exception, is that prayer was made the highest priority. You look at the first great awakening in the 18th century of, uh, uh, of America, 
with Jonathan Edwards and Charles Witherspoon and, and Charles Wesley and John Wesley. An incredible revival that occurred. Took the Church of England and turned it upside down and revived congregations around America and spread the gospel, and it was powerful. And the one thing that they knew to do, they didn't have a lot of books to tell them how to do this. They didn't have a lot of, of, of gimmicks. They didn't have a lot of technology. They didn't have hardly any buildings. But what they had was people who were committed to pray, and they prayed, and the Spirit of God fell way beyond what they could have imagined. It was a remarkable, incredible thing. And then you go to the 19th century, and you find the same thing with the Second Great Awakening, with Charles F Finney and Billy Sunday, a movement that we have not yet seen in this century in comparison. This was a movement, church attendance quadrupled at church regularly. And the, it's hard to tell what the rate of alcoholism was, but we know that it was extremely high. That's where we got this idea of being on the wagon and all that stuff. There was a revival that just completely rocked America. In fact, some have argued, and I think they're right, that the, free, that the, 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 the uh, freedom of the slaves had to do with this revival because churches rose up and protested, protested slavery in the name of the gospel. It was an incredible thing. It, it, it transformed our whole society. And the key to the whole thing, they knew from the start, they knew it throughout the whole the course of the whole thing, and they knew at the end the key to the whole thing was prayer, was prayer. Charles Finney was the greatest of all those revivalists, had an incredible ministry, and when you consider that there wasn't any radio or any TV back then, his impact on America is just astounding. But he said, you know what, a revival, this revival that's been going on, this, a revival is not a miracle. It's not a miracle. There's nothing miraculous really about it. And what he meant by that is this, it doesn't happen by accident. It happens because there's a spiritual law. And like the law of gravity, if you drop something, it falls to the ground. The law of inertia, you stop something, it stays put. You roll something, it keeps on rolling. So also there's a spiritual law, and the law is simply this. When you pray, God moves. So he was asked, how is it that when you come into these towns, you, you, you preach a sermon and people are running up at the altar and there's all this crazy stuff going on and people getting saved and Christians getting off the fence and getting on fire. How do you, how do, you do that? And he says, well, I just follow the Bible. Before I go to a town and preach, I have those pastors agree with me that, 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 that for six months they will meet every morning for an hour and invite members of the congregation to meet in a town for an hour and pray six months, an hour a day, every day of the week. He says, and when I come, it's like lighting a match in a powder keg. The Spirit of God has cultivated the soil. He's opened up hearts. He's opened up minds. He's made it so ripe that you come in there and you burp and people get saved. It couldn't help but happen <laughs> because God's doing it. The flesh can do nothing. Without the Spirit of God, you can make something look really good and look really fancy and write books about it and people will buy it and you might get famous, but it won't come to anything eternal. It won't come to anything of fruit in the kingdom of God because the Spirit of God, which is life, is not present there. And it's still going on today. It's still going on today. This isn't just, oh yeah, the revivals of the past. Wasn't that nice? No, this is going on all over the place. Here's a letter that Steve got by Ed and Ruth Sil Silvoso. A letter from, uh, 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 where is it, it's southern Brazil, uh, Landrina, Landrina. Never heard of the place. But they have got a revival going on right now down there. It's incredible. In the last eight months, this is the kind of stuff that's happening. They have got, they, these people took prayer seriously. They call it prayer evangelism. And they started putting on billboards all around the town, pray for Lantrino. They started having uh, believers drive around the town 
uh, at night for one or two hours and, and do spiritual warfare over this city. This city is, in, in, is just entrenched with Makumba, a real uh, ancient form of witchcraft that's very prevalent in Latin America, and it's all over the place down there. They started doing spiritual warfare, and things really began to happen. Churches began to unite. Churches that had previously been, been at war with one another, even going to the point of, of printing in newspapers attacks on one another. Uh, they, they came to unite and embrace one another. They started meeting together on a regular basis, on a weekly basis, sometimes on a daily basis, and playing for Lantrina. And they are right now going through an incredible revival. The kind of Book of Acts sort of revival. See, the, the Makumba centers are shutting down left and right. Several of them say that, they, 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 they tell their, their adherents, don't bother coming into town on, on, on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday because that's when these Christians are having their prayer meetings and our power doesn't work. It's an incredible kind of revival that they're seeing there with people getting saved and the gifts of the Spirit being poured out and the key to the whole thing. What's their gimmick? What's their catch? Uh, you know, what kind of slogan do they use? It's none of that. It's because these people took prayer seriously. The thing, same thing is starting to go on now in, in Toronto, Canada. They're having a revival up there. There's this little church. It's a warehouse. It's next to an airport, Toronto Airport. And these people just knew, learned how to get on their knees, and they've been praying, and God's doing some bizarre things there. They're now holding services six nights a week because people just want to keep on coming. They can't pack them in enough. And, and, and they're having, it's been, it's been called a laughing revival because one of the things that's commonly happening there is that the whole congregation is being overtaken with this kind of holy laughter. I don't know if you've ever had that or ever seen it. I've had it once in my life. And, and it's uncontrollable. It's like someone gave you a shot of laughing gas. And it's just the joy of the Lord just intoxicates you, and you're laughing. And that's going on all over the place. And it's starting to spread to Ontario and, and, and Quebec and other parts of Canada. And they are seeing the gifts of the Spirit being poured out in incredible ways. Some of the things that happened back in the first and second great awakening that Jonathan Edwards writes about and Charles Wesley writes about, these old these congregationalists being slain in the Spirit. Can you believe that? Congregationalists being slain in the Spirit. I mean, all sorts of, uh, they called it back then, enthusiasm. People actually getting excited about the Lord. Well, it began to happen. The reason was because people began to call on God. They asked God for revival, and God says, that's just what I was waiting for. Pull back the floodgates, uh, Gabriel, and do more than they asked for. And there is absolutely no reason why, if it happens on Lantrino and if it happens in Toronto, it can't happen in St. Paul. Amen? Amen? Are you with me on that? God is the same God in Brazil as he is in Canada as he is in the U.S. And I believe what God has done here at Woodland Hills has been almost unprecedented in terms of church plants in, in, in these last two years, almost two years now. But my heart is saying, it feels that we haven't even begun. We are seeing trickles of, of water that just get through the, the, the cracks of the floodgate, but the floodgate hasn't been opened yet. I, I really believe in my heart of hearts that what God wants to do if we are just persistent enough in prayer is far beyond anything we've done yet. What's happened so far is not the result of, of, of some, you know, gimmick here or there or advertising campaign or anything like that. Lord knows we have done far more wrong than we ever did right. If we wrote a book about what we did here, they'd laugh us off the planet because it just should not work. But we have a prayer base of people that have been praying for this congregation, including a bunch of Catholic nuns in a convent here in the Twin Cities that like this ministry. So they're praying. Those nuns know how to pray. They mix in prayers with Woodland Hills right along with the rosary, and I'll take it. You know, it's, that's great. Hey, go for it. 
God's been doing some great things here. And, and I, I, I'm feeling a crescendo about the whole thing. But that's why I feel here's kind of our fall kickoff. I feel like we just got to go back to the basics and talk about prayer. You know, you know that, that uh, just in, in the last several weeks, I, 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 this kind of thing I hear. We, and we got to get better at, at proclaiming this. Steve, we got to think of ways to do this. And we're going to think of ways. Believe me, God will show us ways. But, but there was this, this, this couple, uh, this person in our church was praying for this couple. And I may have the details wrong now, but they were involved in drug dealing. And she had a heart to evangelize them and was praying that God would just shut down their, their, their dealing. In a week, somehow the whole thing got falling apart. They quit that whole business. The girl got saved. I believe she's coming to this church and we're still working on the husband. That's a result of prayer. Someone really takes prayer seriously. Several weeks ago, there was a lady up here, and I can't, I'm really bad on, on details here. Maybe you're here this morning. Talk to me after service. So I can get your name right for the second service. But, but she, she's about eight months pregnant, and this is about a month ago, so she's probably not here. But uh, um, she was eight, <laughs> very grateful. She's eight months pregnant. I mean, she was really, really pregnant. And she was in pain, and she came up here. And, and she said, I have got this gallstone, and it is killing me. And they can't go in, or they're having trouble deciding what to do because of the complications with the pregnancy. And I'm dying with this thing here, and it could cause problems with the baby. Would you pray? And I'm telling you, she was in a lot of pain. And so a couple of us here at the altar just prayed for her. The next week, I saw her, and she was as happy as can be, just bouncing around. She goes, you know what? I woke up Monday morning, and the pain was gone. I went to my doctor, and he said, somehow you passed the stone. I thought it was too big to be passed, but somehow you passed the stone. The result of prayer, believing in prayer, believing that God can do things like that. We've told you about the Bannett's baby whose eye was healed because of prayer, and Harry Stevens, who two days away from surgery got his knee healed. And I believe those are trickles from the floodgate, and if we want to see the floodgates open, then we've got to be committed in prayer here and now. I want God to do it here and now, not just in Woodland Hills, but I want to see it. I want to see, I want to see a move of God that causes the Twin Cities to take notice. Like, whoa, check that out. Where, where would be a neon sign for God? I can't tell you how... how frustrated I am and how I don't have any time and, I, and God's pulling together believers who have the same kind of feeling but I just don't have anything to do with I don't have any time for, for a sleepy status quo Christianity any longer no time for lethargical liturgies and, and constipated committees and, and raw routines and soft pews and cute little sermons and, and all those kind of things fancy choirs and all that kind of stuff a lot of stuff which can be used of God but so often is done in the flesh I want to see a move of God, don't you? I want to see God flood this place, don't you? I want to see the floodgates poured out and the Spirit of God poured out and people just sold over the Holy Spirit. I want to feel like this every time I preach because right now I'm feeling God all over me. I'm just feeling the the power of God here. And I pray that God would open up your eyes to see that. But the key, the trick, the gimmick, it's no gimmick. It's 2,000 years old. You pray, God answers. But it takes persistence and it takes faith. When we started this work, I challenged all the people who felt, uh, felt called to belong to this body. And if you don't belong to this body, that's fine. Take it to your church. We need a revival over there too. But I challenge you to pray five minutes a day for this work. I'm going to challenge you to do double that. God's been challenging me on this whole issue. Confronted me. And I like to spread the work around. I want to challenge you. You pray about it. This isn't a legal requirement. No one gets any points. We're not going to have any kind of chart. No one's going to check up on it. No one's allowed to ask anybody else, are you doing the 10-minute deal? Forget it. Between you and God. I want to challenge you to pray 10 minutes a day for the leadership here. For the leadership here. We need your prayer support. You can't believe how sometimes we are attacked on things. We need your prayer support for the nursery. 
for the volunteers, for Barry, for the young people. I'd love to see God just saving hundreds and hundreds of young people, uh, getting them off of drugs. There's a powerful ministry developing there, and it's incredible. Be praying for them. Be praying for the board, the decisions that we've got to make. Be praying for things like this upcoming membership seminar that God would draw out all the people that should be there, will be there. Be praying for every facet of the ministry here. We're looking into possibly getting a larger auditorium about a mile away from here. That'd be kind of nice. Seats twice as many people. Be praying for that. Be praying. God will tell you what to pray for if you're listening. Be praying for this ministry. Be in prayer for it. That God could use us as a beacon just to shine throughout these Twin Cities and to just impact it and to see a move of God like they're having down in Londrina, like they're having in Toronto, here in St. Paul right now. It's been great. But I want to see the more than I can imagine part of it. That's what I want to see. Uh, Daryl, you around here, I want to close by, I want to have this as our, our, our closing prayer. Uh, and in fact, if, if there's other musicians who know this song, I think we've got the slides for it. Most of you know it by heart anyways. Shine, Jesus, shine. That's what we're about. Lord, we want you to shine, show off, do the more than imaginable. And, and uh, uh, I'd like to make that our closing prayer. It is a prayer. We're saying, you know, Lord, the light of your light is shining in the midst of the darkness shining. And then we're just saying, Lord, do it. Flood us. And so, hey, you know what? When we sing this, sell out. Don't worry about the person left to you, right of you. Don't worry. Maybe we're worshiping different than you know how to worship. Don't worry about it. Just worship the way you like to worship, but worship. Focus on the Lord. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you don't know the Lord, I want to challenge you to be aware of the presence of God here. Let the Lord open up your heart and see the truth of what we're going to be singing about. Let's stand, give our all in worshiping the Lord.